Section 6 of The Kidnapping of President Lincoln and Other War Detective Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by K. Hand. The Kidnapping of President Lincoln and Other War Detective Stories by Joel Chandler Harris. The Troubles of Martin Coy, Part 2. The six Confederates, accompanied by their eight captors, were on the road early. The Federals seemed to know the ground, and were in no hurry. Their main force was not so very far away, as the Confederates learned afterwards. Martin Coy was at the head of the little squad of prisoners, and he not only marched close to the Federal guard on his right, but kept a sharp lookout for the man, the wagon, and the mule. When they had traveled about four or five miles, they came suddenly upon the man, the wagon, and the mule. The mule was unhitched, a part of the harness hanging loose, as though it had been torn off, and the wagon was half slewed across the road. The arrangement seemed to be an ideal one, but Martin Coy's heart sank when he saw a mounted Federal officer talking to the man. How many more were there in the neighborhood? Martin Coy never lifted his eyes to the face of the mounted officer. He only noted in a general way that the man was large and fine-looking. He watched the man and the mule and drew closer to the guard on his right. Would the scheme work? He would soon know. They were not ten yards from the wagon. The man was saying, Why, she's the plaguianest creature in the whole world. Whoa! Didn't I tell you to whoa? He cried. The mule had flung herself around with incredible swiftness and was now letting fly both heels at the officer's horse, which, backing into the ravine, suddenly slipped and fell. The prisoners were only a few steps from the wagon. Oh, what are you up to? Why don't you whoa before I borrow a gun and kill you? The mule, backing and kicking, dragged the man after her, to all appearances, around the end of the wagon. If Martin Coy was here, he'd fix you, yelled the man. The prisoners accepted this as a signal, and each grabbed the gun of the Federal nearest to him. It was over in a moment, or would have been, had not the mounted officer, whose horse had recovered its footing, came spurring toward the melee, pistol in hand. Stand up there, men. Who called for Martin? The sentence was never completed. Martin Coy had leveled his gun and fired as the officer spoke. The Federal swayed and would have fallen from his horse, but one of the men caught him and eased him to the ground. Martin, he feebly cried, then groaned and seemed to be quite dead. The groan had an echo, for Martin Coy, coming forward, found that he had shot his brother. It's a judgment, he exclaimed hoarsely, a judgment. Now I'm done. You all can take me where you please. Well, I reckon not. Not much, said the man who had been manipulating the mule. War's war, and when family connections get on both sides of the fence, where shooting's going on, somebody's bound to get hurt. With that, he detailed two of the Federals to look after the body of the officer. One of them mounted the horse and rode off to the Federal camp. The other remained by the roadside. The countryman, who was none other than John Omohundro, on his way to Richmond, left his wagon where it was, and turned the mule loose, giving her a friendly slap as he did so. She went cantering back to the farmhouse in double-quick time. Now, you Yanks, just make your minds easy. You've swapped places with these chaps here. Form in a line there, single file. Right about face, and forward march with a hep, hep, hep. Keep step there, Coy. Don't tangle up my army. On the side of the hill, as they retraced their steps, a footpath was visible. It was narrow, but well marked. Into this, Omohundro filed the men, and they were soon on their way south. Martin Coy seemed to be a changed man. 
He would obey orders, but he would not answer when spoken to. The only words he uttered were mumbled to himself, and his companions never knew whether he was praying or cursing. As a matter of fact, he was simply repeating the prophecy of the revivalist. The day will come, be it soon or late, when you will hide from the light of the sun, when you will slink about in the darkness, when you will be a dead man, though yet alive. Instinctively, the men knew that Martin Coy was in great mental trouble. Omohundro was especially full of sympathy. When they reached Richmond, by a word he secured a furlough for Martin Coy, and saw that he was provided with the papers necessary for his transportation, and with a sufficient supply of money. Just when Martin Coy reached home, no one knew except his wife and himself. He kept himself as rigidly as a monk who dwells alone in a cell. He felt that he was under an awful judgment from heaven, and his penance, self-inflicted, was that he never allowed the sun to shine on him, or permitted his eyes to rest on the light it gives forth. It was literally as the preacher said it would be. He hid from the light of the sun, and when he went forth at all, he slunk about under the cover of darkness. So far as the world was concerned, it was the same as if he had been dead and buried. He was so earnest in his beliefs and purposes that he convinced his wife of the spiritual utility of his asceticism, and she, being a woman of considerable energy, and possessing a good head for business, took charge of his affairs and proceeded to manage them with a success that attracted wide attention. To quote Mrs. Nicklin, Old Mall Coy is trying for to be a man. She's actily and candidly begun to sprout a beard. A remark which drew from Mr. Nicklin the response that, A omen as smart as any man, and a plague sight smarter most on him, is got a good right for to have a beard. Martin Coy was at home for nearly four years before anybody knew it except his wife. He occupied a room in the second story of his house, and the windows to this room were not only closely shuttered on the outside, but heavily hung with curtains on the inside. He limited himself to one meal of cold victuals and took that at night by the light of a tallow candle. Sometimes he read the Bible, but more often he paced back and forth as far as the narrow limits of his room would allow. But after the first fever of his repentance, if it can be called that, passed away, he ventured to walk about at hours when he judged that the rest of the community were sound asleep. When the surviving members of his company returned home in 1865, People wondered that Mrs. Coy made no inquiries after her husband, who had failed to return with the others. Then rumors of various kinds flew about. Some said that he, with a number of others, perished in the retreat from Laurel Hill, others that he died in a northern prison, and there was one persistent story that he had deserted from the Confederate army and joined his brother on the Federal side. Now, in his walks at night, he had been seen and recognized by various Negroes. This, however, was no evidence to them that Martin Coy was alive. Quite the contrary. It was an evidence that he was dead. Fiddlin' Bill, who had known him well and liked him, saw him one night and spoke to him. Receiving no response, he spoke again in a louder tone, whereupon Martin Coy turned slowly around, looked at the negro hard, and groaned. This was sufficient for Fiddlin' Bill, who had serious doubts even before he ventured to speak. The negro turned and went back the way he had come as fast as his heavy wooden leg would permit him. He was going at such a rate that when he came to a plank sidewalk, the thump of the leg could be heard blocks away, and at one point where the iron-shod foot of the wooden leg was forced between two planks and held there as in a vice, Fiddlin' Bill gave one despairing wrench and tore up a whole section of the walk. The Negro's testimony and the evidence of the wrecked walk were sufficient to convince all the Negroes, and not a few whites, that the ghost of Martin Coy walked abroad and refused to be laid. The reason was plain. He had died in strange parts, and had been buried in strange soil, and his perturbed spirit would never be satisfied until his bones were brought back home. 
this was manifest on the face of it since he had been seen most frequently near the village burying ground of course the more sensible people of the community never bothered their heads with these stories but they flew about all the same and so much life and substance has a myth of this sort that it persists to this day and coy's ghost is still supposed by the superstitious to be walking in that region flitting about as it were from neighborhood to neighborhood to meet emergencies or to explain manifestations that appear to be mysterious slowly however the real facts of the case became known to the older citizens and these as usual were disposed to be sympathetic especially colonel fontaine florney of whose family the coys had in old times been retainers not in the feudal sense of course but by reason of long association and mutual obligations as soon as colonel florney returned from his south american adventures he called on mrs mccoy and from her learned the facts he also held a brief conversation with martin coy through the closed door of his room and tried to convince him of the folly of his course the effort was unsuccessful martin coy clung to the idea that the revivalist who denounced him had been the means of bringing down upon his head the judgment of heaven now among those who took a sincere interest in the case of martin coy was captain mccarthy he was one of the few who had heard all the facts as he was a very practical man he went to work in a practical way saying nothing of his plans but his daughter nora observed that he was engaged in a very extensive correspondence one morning she counted as many as twenty letters lying on the library table all sealed stamped and addressed one she noticed was addressed to the pension office and this she made the basis for a series of inquiries which were leveled at her father in a tone at once innocent and serious it was dada dear do you think i'll ever draw a pension I carried your laundry to you when you were in the hotel. Don't you think I deserve a pension for that? Or, has the government ever rewarded you for not taking charge of the paper which was to settle everything? Captain McCarthy was very much puzzled by such questions as these until he happened to remember that Nora had been dusting the library, whereupon, in mock indignation, he tried to catch her. Nora ran screaming and laughing around the room, out of the door into the hall, and from the hall straight into the arms of young Francis Florney, who had called at that hour on pretense of asking the captain's advice on some business matter. He thought, poor young man, that he was very sly and very shrewd, and that no one except Miss Nora knew why he called so often, whereas Miss Nora was the only one in all that neighborhood who wasn't really certain. She had her suspicions, and they were very pleasant ones, but she had her doubts too. She was very reserved and circumspect, and she never under any circumstances betrayed her real feelings except in a thousand different ways which were plain to everybody except to young florney it is the way of lovers the world over so the story-tellers say but when nora startled francis florney and herself by accidentally running into his arms with her father looking on and not attempting to conceal his triumphant amusement she didn't know whether to laugh or cry as a matter of fact she did both at one and the same time and blushed and bit her lip and pretended to be very much amused at everything and very angry with everybody but after a while as they were talking on the veranda she became very much subdued wonderful for nora she fell into a fit of melancholy and this young florney had sense enough to take advantage of he was used to young ladies who were romantic and troubled with a gentle melancholy but nora with her various and versatile emotions chief among which was a keen and restless humor had been very much of a puzzle to the young man when therefore she remarked with a little sigh that she supposed he came to see her father he remarked that he was in no hurry and that if well in short he then and there took the opportunity by the foretop and said what he had been trying to say for many months 
and as for Nora, she said that she could never enter into any engagement so serious until her father had approved of it, and so forth, and so on. This suggestion was promptly followed by Francis Florney. He could talk to a man, and he had a long and serious talk with Nora's father, who, after pointing out, as thoughtful fathers will, what a solemn and sacred bond marriage is, said that nothing could please him more than to see his daughter the wife of the son of his old friend. And Nora, whose interest and curiosity impelled her to listen at the library door, became so frightened at the serious character of the conversation that she went off somewhere and cried, a fact which thoroughly restored her high spirits. Her father, however, must have his joke, for when he saw her he put on a very serious and perplexed countenance. Nora, he said, until son Francis came and talked with me, I was sure that the event of this morning was an accident. What event, Dada? inquired Nora, blushing. Why, the performance of rushing out and jumping into the young man's arms. Strange to say, she forgot to be teased. Instead of protesting against his whimsical suggestion, she threw her arms around him and exclaimed, Oh, you are the best man in the whole world. There are exceptions, he remarked, but what else could I be with such a child as this to give away to the first young lover that asks for her? Now you will say that this is taking you away from Martin Coy and his troubles. On the contrary, it is carrying us straight to the project which Captain McCarthy had devised. For the wedding of Nora and young Florney was made the occasion of a device to draw Martin Coy out of his shell, and to convince him that some things are true as well as others, as Mr. Nicklin would say. It was decided by the young people that the wedding should take place within two months at least, the particular day to conform, of course, to Nora's arrangements. Now, when a girl decides to get married, there's a great question of gowns, robes, and whatnots, a question of interminable and unending details. For the discussion started, then may rest a while, but you may be sure they will be carried safely over to the next generation, when the girl who was in such a flurry over her own outfit will be every bit as nervous over that of her daughter. Meantime, Captain McCarthy carried on his correspondence with such vigor that he soon made a discovery of great importance, and this is why, the day before the wedding, he drove to the railroad station a few miles away and returned with a stranger. This done, the captain sought out Martin Coy and insisted on seeing him face to face. I like you well enough, said Martin, but I don't want to see you. I want to see you and talk to you for your own sake, the captain insisted. My sake ain't so much of a sake as to worry you, I hope, remarked Martin Coy. We'll never get to heaven if our neighbor's troubles don't worry us, suggested the captain. I want to see you for Nora's sake. Now, Nora had taken a very great interest in the troubles of Martin Coy. She had gone over and talked to him through his closed door and only a day or two previous to the captain's visit, has sung and played on the harp for Martin. Being in a romantic mood herself, owing to circumstances, the songs she had chosen were Irish ballads, and the quality of her voice, which was rich and sweet, and the heartbreaking character of the melodies, were sufficient to bring tears to Martin Coy's eyes for the first time in many years. She heard him sobbing when her songs were ended, and she slipped away without saying a word. So, when Captain McCarthy said, for Nora's sake, he put a new face on the matter. She's a mighty fine girl, I reckon, remarked Martin Coy. She came over and sung for me the other day, and who else in all the world would have done that? It's Nora's way, said the captain gently. He had a marvelous touch of sympathy in his voice when he chose to employ it. It's the child's way. When she came home, she was crying. Martin Coy made no reply to this, but after a while the key turned in the lock and the door opened. Come in, and I'll strike a match, he said. 
This done, a candle was soon lighted, and Martin Coy turned inquiring eyes on the face of the man who had insisted on seeing him. He was surprised to find that the look which Captain McCarthy fixed on him was not one of curiosity. "'I was not especially anxious to see your face,' exclaimed the captain. "'I wanted you to see mine, so that you could judge for yourself whether I am likely to make an idle or foolish request of a man who for so many years has had sorrow for a bedfellow.' The features of Captain McCarthy could be stern enough when the necessity arose, but they were softened now and illuminated by a friendly light in his eyes. The most ignorant human being in the world would have had no difficulty in trusting that face, to which fixed principles and an invincible desire to follow the right on all occasions, and at all hazards, had given a certain air of nobility. The request I want to make is that you will come to Nora's wedding. Martin Coy frowned, and then threw up both hands with a querulous exclamation. Now, Cap, you know I can't do that. Oh, why do you pester me that away? The ceremony will take place at night, remarked McCarthy, tomorrow night. But everything will be all lit up. Folks could see me a mile in that light. No, Cap, I wish the child mighty well. That's enough. I don't want to bring no judgment down on her head. They say she's purty as a pink. I'd give her bad luck the balance of her days. Look at me. Oh, Lord, look at me. You will sit in a dark room, and you will be seen only by those you desire to see. Martin Coy rubbed his hands together as though washing them. And Nora has her heart set on it. She says she won't be as happy as she wants to be if you fail to come. Did she say that? Martin Coy's voice broke and grew husky. She said a great deal more than that, replied Captain McCarthy. She said she couldn't bear to be happy knowing that you were sitting here lonely and unhappy. Lord, Lord! cried Martin Coy, covering his face with both hands. "'Has she allers been like that?' he asked after a while. "'Ever since she was a little slip of a girl,' said Captain McCarthy. Martin Coy walked up and down the room for some time. Then he paused. "'Will you come after me?' he asked. "'Certainly,' said the other, "'with the greatest pleasure in the world. "'And I'll say this.' Captain McCarthy's eyes were speaking now. "'When you return home from Nora's wedding, "'you'll never walk in the darkness any more.' You'll never hide from the light of the sun any more. You reckon not? asked Coy, eagerly. You'll see, my friend. When Captain McCarthy went downstairs, Mrs. Coy was waiting for him. What had happened, and how did he manage to get in the room? To her mind, the explanation didn't explain, and then she learned that her husband had promised to attend Nora's wedding. She vowed that wonders would never cease, though this was the greatest wonder of all. Martin Coy went to the wedding. The library had no light in it, and the door looking out into the parlor had a strip of white ribbon tied across it, and this kept all intruders out. The house was filled with a goodly company of men and women, boys and girls, and there was a great mixture of music and laughter, rustling dresses, fluttering fans, and the incessant chatter proper to a festal occasion. Martin Coy feasted his eyes and ears on it all. He felt elated without knowing why. He paid no attention when the door leading upon the veranda opened, and someone came in and took a seat not far from him. He heard nothing until Captain McCarthy came in by the same door and closed it with something like a bang. Then Martin Coy turned and saw someone sitting near him. His eyes by long use had become habituated to the darkness. He arose and shrank away with a smothered groan. He stumbled and would have fallen but for the strong arm of Captain McCarthy. I knowed it. I knowed it. It's a judgment. Do you see anything in that cheer there? Why, certainly, replied the captain. I see Captain Harvey Coy of Missouri. Why, Harvey Coy's as dead as a doornail. I killed him myself, said Martin, shaken all over. 
Just feel of me, Martin, and see if I'm dead, exclaimed Harvey. Oh, why didn't you come before, or write? Martin asked petulantly. After I got well, I hated everybody in the South, replied Harvey, and after I got over my spell of hatin', I didn't know how you people would treat a man who had fought on the other side. Captain McCarthy slipped out and left them, when he came back an hour after to warn them that the ceremony was about to begin. He found Martin laughing and telling his brother some incident of his childhood. After the wedding was over and the congratulations had been said, and Nora and her husband had been whirled away in a carriage to catch the midnight train, Captain McCarthy slapped Martin Coy on the shoulder and said in a bantering tone, Well, what do you think of Nora? Don't ask me to talk about her, Cap. I get a catch in the throat every time I think about her. If Frank Florney don't treat her right, there'll be murder done in this neighborhood as certain as the world. This topic was new to Captain McCarthy. He half closed his eyes, pursed his lips, rocked backward and forward on his feet, and then said sharply, We'll shake hands on that, Martin. But really, the suggestion was the last remnant of Martin Coy's disordered fancy as it melted away. Nora Florney had, and still has, as much happiness as ever fell to the lot of woman in this world, and she earned it by making others happy. And Martin Coy was happy, too, to the day of his death. To the last, he insisted that folks never could know what real happiness is until, to employ his phrase, they had had a whole passel of trouble. End of section 6